If you're like me, you're tired of everybody having the same Funko Pop figures and Super Mario t-shirts. That's why this episode of Modern Mouse is brought to you by The Geeklery. It's a curated collection of artisan jewelry and goods that are inspired by your favorite movies and TV shows or whatever you like. If you love Disney or Harry Potter or video games or tiki culture, The Geeklery creates one-of-a-kind pieces that you can wear or showcase however you'd like. Better yet, for every purchase, The Geeklery donates 5% of its earnings to the Pop Culture Classroom, an organization that helps educate, inspire literacy, and cultivate diversity in students through their use of our favorite stories. Find the unique item that represents you today at geeklery.com. That's geeklery.com. Maybe you're like me, and you grew up watching educational television. Shows like Bill Nye the Science Guy, Blue's Clues, The Magic School Bus, or Schoolhouse Rock. For decades, programs like these not only entertained us, but educated us and helped us develop into the people that we are. But what if I told you that these shows are constantly under attack and are often canceled, not because they don't have an audience, but because they're politicized. And the same can be said for the United States education system as a whole with political figures and outside organizations dictating how and what we teach the world's most impressionable citizens. My name's Josh Taylor, and you're listening to my podcast, Modern Mouse, a look at the less magical side of life through the most magical lens I know, the Walt Disney Company. In this episode, I'll be examining the world of children's educational television, the bureaucracy of the U.S. education system, and why it chooses to hold children and teachers down rather than allow them to excel, and what we need to be aware of and care about in order to change the way that we teach so that future generations can blossom without propaganda and politics. I would say, you know, I've been doing this now for uh, 40 years or more. The the hardest writing I ever had, had to do was Sesame Street, knocking out screenplays in Hollywood. So much easier <laughs> than, than having to write Sesame Street. That's Mark Saltzman. He's a writer that's been creating children's entertainment for years. He wrote movies like The Adventures of Milo and Otis and the Disney Channel show Johnny and the Sprites. But from 1984 until 1999, he was an Emmy Award-winning writer of songs and sketches for a show that many of us probably grew up watching, Sesame Street. Ernie, that is my cookie. This is not your cookie, Bert. This is my cookie. That is too my cookie, Ernie. Ernie, you come back here. Ernie, it's my cookie. That is not your cookie, Bert. This is my cookie. I've been saving it all day, Ernie. I've been saving this cookie since this morning, Bert, and I'm going to eat it right now. If you eat that cookie, Ernie, I... 
I will never talk to you again. That is a deal, Bert. Joe mm. Cookie Thief. At Sesame Street, it was it was pretty strictly enforced from both sides. I, I mean, the head writer was when I was there was Norman Stiles, and he was a, a hardcore comedy writer. He didn't come out of educational television. He was more of a stand-up comedy uh, guy. So that that was a real push um, to keep it that way, to keep it um, as a comedy show. Meanwhile, there's the education department overseen by the Harvard School of Education, and they want to make sure every single thing on the air has educational content, has a, a teaching message. So pretty much every sketch would have to have both. It had to be a comedy sketch and um, uh, and have an educational goal to it that, that you were teaching the kids something uh, in this sketch. So it's really hard because if you think of it, you know, like sketch renders at comedy shows like Saturday Night Live, a sketch show like that, you just have to write a funny sketch, you know, there's no other layer to it. So we, we felt we were working twice as hard as those people. Outside of needing to balance television writing and educational material that was presented from Harvard, Sesame Street and other children's programming on public television had to deal with another entity, the public. Sesame Street began airing in 1969, just a few years removed from the passing of the Civil Rights Act. But that act didn't stop racism at all. And a show like Sesame Street, which promoted multiracial neighborhoods rather than segregation, got plenty of hate. And so did Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. In fact, in that same year that Sesame Street debuted, Fred Rogers invited Francois Clemens, the black police officer on his show, to share a moment of racial unity by dipping their feet in a small pool together. Acts like this, as well as an overall fear of what was being shown on TV, nearly brought a halt to the funding of public television. And it would be Fred Rogers who would testify in front of the American Senate to keep that funding going. Uh, I think that it's much more dramatic that two men could be working out their feelings of anger much more dramatic than showing something of gunfire. I'm constantly concerned about what our children are seeing. And for 15 years, I have tried in this country and Canada to present what I feel is a meaningful expression of care. Do you narrate it? I'm the host, yes. And I do all the puppets, and I write all the music, and I write all the scripts. Well, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. <laughs> well, I'm grateful, not only for your goosebumps, but for your interest in, in our kind of communication. Could I tell the you communications the subcommittee chairman, Senator John Pastor, ended up granting $20 million in funding to public television after that hearing. But the fear and fight against what children were watching on TV didn't falter. By the 1990s, the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC, was worried about commercial television. Regulations were put in place that could only allow 10 minutes of commercials in a half-an-hour program. There needed to be at least three hours of educational TV per day. 
children's advertisements could not contain the characters from the show that they were currently watching, and those shows could not move time slots more than 10% of the time. The Children's Television Act continued to add more and more regulations to networks and their creators, which included the need to log and report their shows. The educational elements needed to also be reported, and there needed to be a direct communication to viewers for how those shows could be contacted. From that point, the bureaucracy that was involved in children's television became absurd. Former TV executive Margaret Loesch. We did an animated show called Planet of the Apes, based on the first movie and the books of, of equal fame. And I got a call from the producer to Patty Freeling, Frizz Freeling Studio, his company, and they said, well, we got a problem, Margaret, with your broadcast standards. They won't let us air the show. I said, what do you mean they won't let you air the show? They said, yes, your broadcast standards editor has said the music is too violent. What? What? So I got in my car, I drove over. The, my own broadcast standards person was there who you know, doesn't work for programming, works for a separate division to keep it independent. And I watched the show and the music was fantastic. Now, by the way, DePatty Freeling had gone to London and used the London S Symphony to score the series. It was a glorious score. I said to DePatty Freeling, what are we gonna do? I don't wanna change the music. I'm not gonna, I don't think you should change the music. They said, leave it to us. So they had the uh, broadcast center to scheduled another screening for him to come in the next day. And I was there. I went in, they screened it the next day. And the broadcast standards editor said, okay, it's fine now. Thank you for making the changes. So he left. And I said to, to Patty and to Freeling, I said, what just happened? Because that was the same score. He says, yeah, but we use really little speakers. I said, you're kidding. He says, no, but it worked. So part of the problem was the way various broadcast, or part of the challenge was the way various broadcast standards editors interpreted all the rules about violence. So there was good and bad with the act. The FCC guidelines had good intentions, but those regulations became harder and harder to navigate. By the mid-2000s, we were seeing less children's programming on television, most of it moving from regular TV to cable networks dedicated solely to children's programming because it wasn't nearly as regulated. And networks like the Disney Channel could carve out a block like Disney Junior and not worry about having to share airtime with other entities since it was run by the Disney company. The Children's Television Act, a policy meant to keep children's programming safe and on TV, killed children's television on networks that ran Saturday morning cartoons for years. But something similar was happening as well to the U.S. education system as a whole. You measure every day. That's why you're successful business people. I mean, you know what your business is doing. I believe we ought to extend that same principle to our public schools and ask a simple question. Can a child read at grade level? And in order to determine that, that's, that's why you measure. And if the answer is yes, we all say, great. If the answer is no, the question will be, then what are you going to do about it? And so the principle behind the No Child Left Behind Act is to set high standards, believe every child can learn, and measure to see if we're getting results. 
and Congress need not weaken such a good piece of legislation. In 2001, the George W. Bush administration opted to pass something called the No Child Left Behind Act, and it was deeply flawed. Funding for public education is <laughs> incredibly flawed, um, especially here in Colorado, um, where it is, you know, back as you you alluded to with, you know, No Child Left Behind um, and the standardization movement, um, really set a place of, you know, wanting to have all students learn the same things and in the exact same ways. And then there was high stakes tests to prove that that was the case. Um, and then they tied funding to that across the United States. That's Miguel Gonzalez, the director of education at a micro school in Denver called Embark. Embark's mission is to give students more one-on-one time with their teachers, integrating lessons together and using spaces like a coffee shop and a bicycle store to their advantage in order to teach real-world skills and help students find the educational strategy that works best for them. And even though it's been 20 years since the No Child Left Behind Act was passed, the U.S. education system still has its problems. Really, like the the system is set up to do exactly what it's doing, right? Which is to support white, middle, and upper class people to continually grow, and it's doing it's doing that, right? Like as we look to who are who holds the most wealth in the United States, you see white males. Um, even as you go tears down, you continually see that same trend. That is who benefits the most the system is working and so that is that's the that's the problem if we want to live in a in a country that's equitable uh, we need to fundamentally be rethinking systems more than just the education system but education is is absolutely at the center of of what needs to shift what Miguel's talking about is that funding for schools disproportionately gives upper class and traditionally white Americans an advantage. Private schools and charter schools get more funding than public schools. Let me give you an unfair example. Every October, students are counted. The amount of students that a school has determines the amount of funding that school will get for the year. Charter schools will often accept more students than they'll actually be taking on. And then once that October count has been done, they'll dismiss poor performing students and force them into the public school system. This loophole that charter schools take advantage of leaves them with more money and fewer students in classrooms, while public schools end up with extra students and no extra funding. I decided to talk to an old high school classmate of mine, Corey Eichmann, about her experiences as a public school teacher. So last year I had four different language arts classes with anywhere from 32 to 40 students per class. In two of those classes, I was the only teacher present. So it was one to 40. And then in two of the classes, I had a push in special ed teacher because our case numbers for special ed were so high that we needed to have a the special ed teacher push into my classes to help with those kiddos. Standardized testing still exists, and with Corey taking on so many students, it becomes a big challenge. 
The testing also doesn't keep in mind exceptions, like special education students or students whose first language isn't English, or students who have other problems going on in their lives, like homelessness or abuse. The district that Corey teaches in has a lot of these exceptions and has underperformed in testing. So the state government has brought in an outside source to try and turn the school around. Um, And so we have this company called MGT that's overseeing what we do. And MGT is supposed to be fixing us. Um, What they've really done is they've added more meetings to our schedule so we get less plan time. And other than that, I don't know that they've done anything. The MGT people don't come into my classroom and watch me teach and tell me what I can do. The MGT people have not helped us get new supplies or new desks. The MGT people have not changed my class sizes or added additional supports in the way of therapists or social workers or special ed teachers. What MGT has done is they have mandated additional meetings and they made us pick a curriculum. The state of Colorado is paying a corporation, MGT Consulting, to bring their curriculum to Corey's school. As a language arts teacher, Corey used to be able to connect with her students through the books and curriculum that she chose. But now that MGT is in charge of her classroom, her students are finding themselves reading only fragments of books deemed necessary for further testing in the future. Instead of picking up something like To Kill a Mockingbird, reading the whole book and being able to discuss it, students are reading select chapters. Not grasping what the story is even about, Corey's finding herself having to explain the book to her students more than if they had just read the whole book themselves. And it leaves her, along with other teachers, frustrated. Honestly, if they treat teachers as though we're not trustworthy or reliable, um, like if they don't stand over our shoulders and tell us what to do at all times, that for some reason we just, we won't do a job. We won't do the job that we went to college for that we're passionate about to the point where, you know, I work a second job just to pay my bills. So now what? The education system, like many government systems, has become a for-profit enterprise. And despite the name, students are still being left behind. Teachers are underpaid for a job that continues to devalue them. How do we change for the better? How do we shift the narrative of the education system? I asked Miguel. My hope for the future of education is, you know, in the near term, that we are able to to recognize um, and decenter the adults in education setting, and really center um, our learners, our youth, and recognize that they truly are the they are the future, and they hold much more knowledge than we give them credit for. Right? Our world has absolutely shifted. Schools can no longer be the holders of knowledge. Teachers can no longer be the deliverers of knowledge. That is an antiquated mindset, right? All of our students, all of our youth are 100% capable of using Google. And they can look up all the content that they need. 
they're not they're they're not watching TV, right? They're not doing those things in the way that they used to do it. Like right? they're they're engaging with YouTube, like social media, whatever that might be. Um, where there is a lot less regulation, there's like a lot less regulation upon YouTube, right? Um, and many many students, like when I talk with students regularly, like they're talking about instructional videos, whatever it might be, like they are taking intaking educational content in the formats that they're choosing, right? In the formats that aren't beholden to the bureaucracies of government, of teachers, of their parents, right? They will continue to push those boundaries to find what they need. And so in order to to better support that, we must embrace what they're doing. Empowering students, giving them the tools to figure out what the world is about. It's something that I see happening in Embark Education, a school that's run by a nonprofit organization that doesn't require its students or families to pay a tuition. There aren't programs like this everywhere in the world, but we are starting to see alternative schools like this pop up. As for the children's television industry, Mark Saltzman was distanced from Sesame Street when he did an interview and his words were misinterpreted. He and his partner saw themselves in Burton Ernie. But when it was published, the story ran with the headline of a former writer declaring that Bert and Ernie were gay, a subject that Sesame Street and the larger children's television community still haven't been ready to tackle. I asked Mark if he'd ever think of writing children's TV again, especially if it were for a gay storyline. Um, people are extremely sensitive about what's shown to kids, especially little kids, and this is still um, children's TV as far as as gay issues and gender issues is like 1955. You know that that they just um, it's erasure, it's exclusion, it's non-diverse, and it. Um, so I'd be really eager to to get involved in a show that was. Uh, um, positive in all these uh, on these aspects of uh, uh, kids' lives. This episode was a long time in the works, so to those of you that patiently waited, thank you. Before I end this episode, I need to thank my guests, Margaret Loesch, who honestly had some wonderful anecdotal stories about her time in television. Corey Eichmann, who not only helped me with this interview, but has continued to speak out and do interviews on the betterment of the education system. Miguel Gonzalez, who is doing amazing work with Embark, and you can find out more information about that school at EmbarkEducation.org if you're curious. And Mark Saltzman, who I talked to for hours for this interview, and now consider a personal friend. You can find out more about him and his work at msaltzman.com. If you want to support the show, 
please visit network1901.com where there are links to my Patreon page where you can get exclusive podcasts and videos that come out every week. And there's a shop link on the website as well. So if you want to pick up a sticker or a shirt, you can help. All of that keeps the show running smoothly. And new Modern Mouse episodes are back with a brand new episode each month. And in the meantime, I look forward to talking to all of you again soon. And remember, keep moving forward.